The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Big side, did you get that side? Can we keep that in? <laughs> that's our, that's the problem is we've exhausted all our energy. Yeah. And honestly, listeners, if you could um, have a window into the sealed section of the Gone by Lunchtime podcast, you would really have fun. There's a lot of libel in there, a lot of malicious gossip, a lot of what else was there? Ben? Some some informed speculation, <laughs> some prognostication. Oh, wow. Kia ora tata, this is Gone by Lunchtime. That was Ben Thomas, I'm Toby Manheim. and that there is Annabelle Lee. How are you, Annabelle? Very well. How are you, Ben? I'm great. Um, we are a little bit late, uh, a week late. We were going to podcast last week, but then something always happens, doesn't it? Um, well, it was my fault. Was it your fault? Yeah. Um, uh, but if we had had our podcast last week, we were all going to come in and predict that Jeremy Corbyn would surge to within a few percentage points of Theresa May's Conservative Party. That was what we were going to predict, and that the youth vote would be more Honest than... to God. That's what mm-hmm. we were... That's what I had written in a sealed envelope mm-hmm. that I had sent to myself and date-stamped. Um, again, the pundits were all confounded, and we all know nothing. Um, we're going to talk a bit about the UK election, maybe a bit about the immigration policy from Labour, what else... We haven't even spoken since the budget, which seems like an a million years ago. ago. Mm. Um, a million pies ago. So we'll probably get there. Um, the UK election. We did you watch it closely, Ben? No, I kind of I kind of kept in touch with it. Um, lots of people sent me clippings of Theresa May interviews, which oh. were my main lifeline into it. Right. Um, the memes, is, the main memes, the n- main not memes, even the memes. Just... The, the direct primary material yeah. I thought couldn't couldn't really be improved on. <laughs> um, you know, as, as she kind of trundled from interview to interview, being asked, you know, which Harry Potter character she was like, and she'd say, "I'm not really like any of the characters, but I think they're a terrific read for adults and children." And the, the, this kind of, <laughs> I, th- I think the Tories kind of took the traditional small target strategy for a campaign and turned it into a kind of blank canvas that's just totally empty slate you know a a kind of space where there should be a candidate yeah well the strategy was i guess that the lead is so big and the opposition is so hapless that what we need to do is the closest possible thing to nothing at all and they decided not to even front for debates and that 
quite badly in mm. the end. Did you keep an eye on it, Annabelle? I didn't really keep an eye on it. Only what people were sort of posting about it on um, on, on Facebook and so on. But it seems like she has really um, snatched victory from the uh, snatched um, defeat from the jaws of victory in the most embarrassing and arrogant way. Um, but it does show, I guess. I mean, we ended up with a hung parliament, of course, so they, the, the Tories still came first and, weirdly enough, increased their percentage of the vote, but not by as much as Labour did. And we got this hung parliament and this rather appalling spectre of a deal with the DUP <clears throat> um, and uh, when it collapsed, the Good Friday Agreement. But we won't get into that. But the, 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 it does show, maybe, if nothing else, that things can change in an election campaign. So when we look ahead to... Our own election, what are we now? 13th of June as we speak, 23rd of September. So that's, by my calculations, two months and uh, <laughs> ten days. Um, things can shift. You yeah, know, look, things aren't locked in the way that we've become used to a sort of, uh, I don't know, campaign inertia almost. In, in yeah, terms we, of polls. We, this happened in the United States election, um, happened over Brexit, and yep. it's happened now in Great Britain. We've seen that campaigns have actually had much more of a tangible effect. It's become sort of common wisdom, and I've always gone by the rule of thumb that you can basically predict an election result by looking at the polls about a year out. Um, same time of year, you know, so it's September, it's a bit gloomy, people aren't sort of, you know, in love with the government. Um, and, and you'll usually be about right, and that's been the case for most previous New Zealand elections. Um, but what... It, but I think what those campaigns had in common was that there, there was a bit of a vacuum at their core. You know, I've talked about Theresa May being a cipher. Um, Hillary Clinton as well basically didn't campaign or was not seen to campaign on a positive vision or indeed any kind of vision. She just attacked Donald Trump. And that was the same kind of thing that May did with Corbyn. Mm. So I'm not sure that we have exactly the same conditions for that in mm. New Zealand. But w what I also thought was an interesting lesson is that, you know, no matter, you know, because the, the Corbyn surge was seen as a kind of corrective to the, the kind of right-wing conservative populist surge um, in America, you know, this idea that if the left adopted some of the same sort of, you know, setting a vision uh, kind of tactics, you know, that, that people would fall in behind. And we saw a huge increase in the youth vote, 72%, I think, of 18 to No, it's not quite right, but anyway, quite yeah, right. it's an, an increase, yeah. And, um, but, but at the end of it, they still are likely to end up with a more conservative, more reactionary government um, because of uh, the, the, uh, the the unionists. And so I think what this shows us is that nothing can go right in the current hellscape that we live in. <laughs> <laughs> and we're ultimately doomed. Do we think, though, that it's that things shifted during the campaign or is it that the media are just not... Um, in touch with what's actually happening on the ground. I think probably it's a bit of both. Isn't it? I mean, I, I, I think that it, you know the the media in the UK from every side of the spectrum, and it does span quite a way there. Of course, clearly weren't quite in touch with what was going on. Maybe in the same way that they in in, in the states they weren't really in touch with what was going on. And or to put it another way, it shows that now. This in itself has become a bit of a cliche, but you can now bypass those traditional, those traditional organs of mainstream media and get your message across without mm -hmm. them. So you know there was some there was some interesting 
data that's come through in terms of the way the Corbyn campaign worked, that that the most shared pieces were positive Corbyn pieces, but most of the pieces, and this goes across all parts of the media, including the you know the the liberal left branches, um, were the vast disproportion were the vast proportion were anti Corbyn, but that didn't matter because if people weren't sharing them, then you know mm. it doesn't matter anymore if you've got a vicious if it ever did if you've got a vicious denunciation of Jeremy Corbyn on the front page of the Mail or the Sun, it matters which story human beings are sharing with one another. Yeah, and for this, this is part of the reason that I think politicians and PR people and really close media watchers, people who spend all their day on Twitter, can actually be much more disconnected than the general public are in the sense that there's, you know, there is this kind of long tail in internet-based stories, you know, newspapers in particular, where certain stories will get the vast, vast bulk of readership and then some will be in sort of double or single figures, you know, and basically just sort of published into the void. Um, and when you're, when you're sort of keeping a close eye on sort of media monitoring, all of these things flash past your retina at the same, you know, at the same speed and, and you don't really see the weighting. Uh, with which they're actually getting, you know, read and taken up by the public. In terms of the New Zealand context, I don't know if there is a lot of take home um, for us in, in this election. I think the circumstances are pretty different. Theresa May appears to be like quite a flaky um, leader. I don't think that um, English has the same level of of arrogance as her. And in terms of Andrew Little, Corbyn had a party that was ankle-tapping him, whereas I think you could almost argue that Little is the one that often ankle-taps his own, his own party and confuses messages, you know, a recent mm. example being Calvin Davis and, and the prison issue. I think what's interesting is that, um, you know, perhaps less time should be spent in terms of Labour fighting over the, little, the middle ground and looking further to the left for votes, and perhaps the biggest lesson is for the media, which is that you know we don't know all we think we know. The um, certainly the there is an argument that what it shows and what other elections in Europe and the states have shown is that people are looking for someone who says something, you know. So whether it's the centre or the left or even a kind of version of social conservatism, people want to hear someone who speaks human words and presents a vision rather than kind of dancing carefully in the way that mm. certainly Hillary Clinton did. And I mean, could you argue that Bill English even needs to think about a campaign that sets out a really a clearer vision than National Party campaigns in the, have been in the past? Do you reckon, Ben, if you were advising that? Because, I mean, I mean, I mean, mean, they have already started using the strong and stable slogan a couple of times. Yeah, and it's that's right. possible, I mean, you know, I made that joke, but it is possible that they had said that is, that, that is what they were planning to use, and it may be that it's not really, people aren't so interested in facile slogans at the moment. Yeah, Frank Luntz, who's an American political consultant, he's the guy who came up with the Cephologist. <laughs> yes, um, he's the guy who came up with you know using the words energy exploration for oil drilling. You know, so he's, yeah. he's he's a kind of master spin doctor. I was reading one of his books from two thousand and five where he said that you know actually the the main demographic in America even then was fed ups, and he said that people were fed up about different things, but everyone's fed up. 
um, young people are fed up with being told what to do with you know not not enough jobs being available old people are fed up with society changing around them mm. um so yeah I, I think that's right i think that John, you know, John Key kind of coasted to success on the uh, cusp of something special, um, which l- literally nobody even within the Beehive had any idea what he was referring to. Um, the and that's not really an option here um, mm. in the selection, mm. you know. The, and and I think we saw that with the budget um, that there was at least this kind of semblance of you know a, a clear direction and particular issues kind of being hammered. Uh, we'll come back to the budget in a bit, but let's go first to uh, something of this week, which is the Labour immigration policy, which was uh, announced um, after a lot of rhetoric and a lot of lead-up, including the Chinese-sounding names thing, which made it difficult, certainly, you know, which lab- lab- Labour people will privately acknowledge was a fuck-up of some degree. Um, at least presentationally, do 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 Lab- can Labour Annabelle can Labour lead the debate that they say is needed on immigration in New Zealand, or have they lost the sort of moral authority to do that? Well, someone needs to lead it, and um, and I, I think good on them for at least putting um, some kind of plan out there. Um, there's been a lot of talk, you know, immigration has sort of dominated the political conversation over the last sort of two years, but not many people are willing to actually um, put a proposal out there to be discussed. And, of course, Labor's done that and Twitter is going apeshit. But um, but I, I think there's value in, in what they're proposing and that a, a serious discussion needs to be had around it. The problem is, as you said, is that, when they did the Chinese sounding names, it it definitely, um, um, you know, their credibility on this issue took a hit. But I, I think that you know, the media needs to be mature as well, and um, and to stop harping on about that particular issue and perhaps look at what's being proposed and and analyse it. What do you make of it, Ben? The the the, the sort of headlines on it to to bring back immigration by 20 to 30,000, um, I think, and their focus is on uh, the sort of lower tier tertiary education uh, immigration, which is mostly temporary, but does has, has, has historically in some ways provided a kind of pathway, which some would call a backdoor to um, gaining New Zealand residency. Yeah, the policy that Labour has come out with doesn't, doesn't seem outrageous on the face of it. Um, early on in my working life, I, I worked at one of those private training establishments. Ben Thomas, professor of law. <laughs> so what did it involve? Did you sure. put up? Did you sort of play a VHS tape and? Uh, I look. I, chew gum? I, I think there were some sort of yeah, probably some rudimentary PowerPoint slides that I threw through together okay. the night before. Um, and you know the class would be sort of a quarter full. Most yeah. people would be at the casino. Yeah. Um, it it all sounds horribly stereotypical and <laughs> cliched, but um, it, it so I mean a lot of if, these if there are any Ben 
Thomas, students out there, we'd love to hear from you. Mm. Um, we're happy to uh, get you lawyered up. Yeah, if, you're, or if, if you'd like to call from the large law firm that you now work, work at as a result of your sterling grounding in New Zealand constitutional law. That's right. I hope, Ben, that you were able to convey your deep and profound respect, love and admiration for Jeffrey Palmer, Sir Jeffrey Palmer in these, in these classes. Every time we put up a piece by Sir Jeffrey Palmer on the spin-off website, that old spin blog. Ben Thomas comes in with some vicious zinger. It's hard work. You know what's interesting about the the immigration debate is I, I had a quick look on Twitter on on in the Uber on my way here, and people are <laughs> up and you know up in arms about the potential loss of you know thirty thousand, um, what do they call them, low value students. We currently have ninety thousand New Zealand youth not in employment or training. No one seems to care, but suddenly we're, you know, deeply concerned with the rights of of, um, of, of these students. I mean, there's that, and then the other part of the argument which Bill English has been articulating sort of preemptively, he used, said that it would stall the economy to do that. And there is a, there is a sense in which the economy, uh, or the growth cycle within the economy depends on immigration across the board. To enable, you know, in the most kind of the quotidian examples that we get, to enable uh, an Indian restaurant or a Middle Eastern restaurant to bring in chefs, you know. To, yeah, to I mean, there's t- two points I'd like to make on that. First of all, we can't take the breather that Andrew Little wants until there's at least one better place to get sweet and sour pork in my work. <laughs> to you know, I mean, we need to plan for the future, right? This is New Zealand yeah. Inc. Yeah. And New Zealand Inc. can't work on an empty stomach. We can, we can work on a crowdfunding campaign <laughs> if, if required. Um, secondly, the, you know, it, it was interesting, you know, Labour put out this list of, you know, suppo- what they call supposedly skilled um, work. And Bill English caught a bit of flack for defending supermarket stackers, shelf stackers, you know, mm. saying actually, well, if they, if they don't stack food there won't be any food on the supermarket shelves and of course he's completely right you know when we talk about New Zealanders out of work there is work that a lot of New Zealanders don't want to do Um, and this this kind of falls on deaf ears um, in parliament where most new MPs seem to have been professional political advisors for much of their working life and but and yet still seem dumbfounded that you know we need 3,000 overseas people to go and be tour guides sort of wandering around the South Island and driving buses and taking people on ghost tours of central Auckland um, even though it's work that they probably would never contemplate doing themselves. But is it that people genuinely don't want to work and they genuinely can't find people to do these jobs? Or is it more a case that the wages being offered are so poor that why would people take those jobs? And so actually that immigration is more damaging for our economy because it allows businesses and employers to keep wages low because they know that um, although somebody might not do it for a certain amount, they can always offer it to a new immigrant who often come from really impoverished countries that will happily do it cheap as chips. And is that really good for our economy? And I think is it 800 million that we could potentially lose? It's actually a very, it's a drop in the pool of that particular, um, what would you call it, pool of money. And a lot of these private um Tertiary education providers, whatever you call them, PTEs, unlike the one you worked at, Ben, the very high quality one, a lot of them are not. 
So is that really what we want our economy to be built on? I don't know. Yeah, look, I, I think the export education thing is, is quite an easy win for Labour on this. Going back to their lead-up to it, I, I think this is quite an important point in terms of the politics because, you know, the, the two the two areas where this has impact on New Zealanders is, one, the economic effects, um, you know, perhaps the, the effects on the creaking infrastructure, as Andrew Little would have it, but it also has an effect on the experience of new New Zealanders who live here. Right, and the and, we, and when you crank up the immigration debate, um, tempers flare. People suddenly mm-hmm. start thinking that it's you know it's 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 a bit more legitimate and okay to kind of you know fly their racist flag high, mm. um, and and Labor can say and are saying well obviously we're not anti-immigration you know actually if you read the words of the policy, um, you'll see that this isn't race based, mm. um, but of course there's the, you know this is the oldest trick in the book it's the easiest trick in the book and that's why it's always a go-to to, for flailing parties like Labor, so you know we, the, the, there is and and although they can say well look this is actually a reasonable policy and I think it is it's completely within the bounds of proper debate on immigration policy. Mm. Um, you can't just ignore their behaviour in the lead-up to it, um, which has been inflammatory and incendiary. It's kind of like you know turning up for a boxing match or something, poking your opponent in the eye before it starts, thinking, "Oh, sorry, 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 I'm trying to delete it." Um, you know, but now let's have a fair fight. You know, you, you can't just erase history like not that. Not to strain the metaphor, they, the you know that the passage of time has gone past them. They've served their suspension, maybe red card, blah blah. Maybe they get a fresh start now. I mean, it is difficult, it's isn't like it? It's like Gareth because Morgan and the Cats. Like every time he tries to launch a new policy, we're back with, you know, the, the, the media again harps on about, you know, the, the cat. If you're suggesting his solution to the cat issue <laughs> is something that should be adopted for migration and dealing with <laughs> population surges in Auckland, then I'm afraid I'm going to have to stop you there. You know, what would be nice is to actually have Māori included in the immigration debate, considering that, you know, the Treaty of Waitangi is our original immigration policy. It would be nice to have some um, cross-party discussions amongst the Māori MPs mm. around a tangata whenua perspective on, on immigration. And is there any sign of any of that? Well, interestingly, um, Shane Todima was on our programme a couple of weeks ago. And the Hui TV3, on the Hui TV3, Sunday 9.30, Sunday mornings, repeated at 10.30 on 3 plus 1. Um, he said that he would like to see immigration levels reduced. Mm. Otherwise he's a bit hopeless, isn't he? Uh, I wouldn't say he was hopeless. He was, I only saw him on The Nation. Yeah. On the nation. Uh, no, he was... Um, he probably had about 80% possession of the ball in that interview, I would say. Did he? But um, although Marama and Penny didn't have as much airtime as him, I think they perhaps made their points in a, uh, their, their points in a stronger way. He's, he's definitely an enthusiastic candidate. Um, he's, he's a pretty good performer. I was a bit surprised when he sort of compared his deselection as a Labour candidate to the Foreshore and Seabed Act in terms of throwing Māori <laughs> under the bus, but... Mm. Um, let's move on to something that we can really bring us together as a nation, which is the knighting of uh, John Key. Feel good stuff. Um, who can we can we add a, a, a national anthem and post edit? Um, oh, yes. We could sing it. And in fact, one of the things you missed before the podcast began was a, a sort of radio jingle by Annabelle. What was it? About, oh, oh, on FM. Could we have that just for John Key? Could you do that for the, could you, for you for John Key? Sing the radio it would, it would, jingle. It would be my you, pleasure okay. and my honour. Love songs till midnight. 
FM. This one's going out to you, Sir John. It's beautiful. <laughs> Wipe your eyes. Um, and John Key, who, who's not that into being called Sir John and changed all of his social media handles within approximately five seconds of the announcement being made public. I don't know, there was a bit of a kind of storm immediately that it was sort of outrageous. Is it outrageous? It's sort of really fine, isn't it? I mean, he was the Prime Minister. Yes, he brought back the honours, the knighthoods, but it's kind of what happens, isn't it? Do you guys think that? Or am I... Viewers. I am less offended by Sir John Key being knighted than I am by people who have received these awards simply for being business folk that have made lots of money for themselves. So I, I think he's more deserving than some of the other people that received uh-huh. Queen's Birthday honours. He said it was on his bucket list. Oh, look, yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think what people objected to, what his critics objected to, was his clear and obvious delight. Just, right. his, just his sheer exuberant, yeah. boyish happiness. Yeah. Can I say, though, award, which I is... much prefer that you be openly joyful right. than remember when, cool. when Clark got rid of the knighthoods and then they were, you know, National bought them back and they were mm. off, offered retrospectively yeah. to the people that had received the other gongs. Yeah. And all of them that accepted were like, look, I really don't want to, but my wife really <laughs> wants me to have it. My family, like, I could take or leave it, but my family really want me to have it. No, just be honest. You want it? That's cool. Like, But don't pretend that it's being thrust upon you against your will. It's, yeah. it's like when they brought back Queen's Council. The, there had been a few rounds of appointments of special council under the Clark government. And I, I, I think, you know, when you check the Law Society's website, people had updated their, to the new title within about an hour. You can I read, think. if you want to read... Ben Thomas's long argument with a green candidate on the, the subject of those QCs, you can look at twitter.com. Um, but we're not going to get into that oh, now. Did, did anyone you, see um, Emma Espiner's tweet on Twitter about um, the, about Helen, the Helen Clark? The Helen, where, where she just came that in from so nowhere. so awesome. Yeah, there was, some, <laughs> there was some guy on Twitter musing about, you know, would would Helen Clark have accepted this? Yeah. And um, Emma Espiner came back and said, actually, Helen got, you know, did away with knighthood. So I sure doubt even if it was offered to her that she'd, she'd accept. And, and then, then out, out of, of the nowhere. blue, like the, the heavens opened, the clouds parted, and Auntie Helen came down from the mountaintop. One what word. She, one word. Correct. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> She's everywhere. It was golden. She sees everything we do. Um, And for more on the knighthoods, you can listen to the real pod who got into this before we did last week. Did you? We did you record that, Jose? No, he's shaking his head. He looks like he'd rather be anywhere but here right now. He really does. Can I just say one? Reading the coffee news in his dope hat. Can I just say one thing about those before we move on? Yes. And that is that I really want to acknowledge the the stance of people like Apirana Mahuika and um, and Dr Ranginui Walker, both of whom were offered knighthoods and both of whom turned them down because they felt they were an expression of colonialism and that um, their first loyalty would always be to the iwi Māori and that as Māori men they were born with their, with their own mana. I think that um, it's a very admirable position to take in my opinion what will you do when you when they contact you asking you if you would like to become a dame if they ask me if i want to be a dame i'll say instead of being a dame can i be a lady because i think lady annabelle 
has a really oh, nice yeah. ring to it, whereas Dame Annabelle. That is going to require new legislation, so probably, but yeah. it's worth it. Well, th- yeah, because so it's it's not Lady Brona, it's it's Brona Lady Key because she's a spouse. It's not it's not her Lady own honour. So because he's Sir John, she's yes. she's she's Brona Lady Key. Uh, she's right. just Lady. Lady Brona. She's, no, she's isn't she late? Isn't she Lady Key? She's Brona, comma Lady Key, no, and then they she's call just her Lady, Lady Key. Key. She's just yeah. Lady. You don't get a comma. Um, I mean, comma. I mean, I mean, the real, like the real. Is it a, a comma or is it a hyphen? You get a knighthood and you get a comma. I mean, it's, there aren't punctuations involved. This is bullshit. So she don't. She'd only be Lady Brona if, just, if she was. If she was. Yes, sort of yes. That was a joke that was being no, made on no, the real pod. If, if she was, was like a lots baron, of jokes no, about. This is not a, if you want not a jokes joke, about I, Lady Bronas, you can go to the real pod. That's the kind of what, level what I, of conversation. What, I, what I'm set, what I'm setting up, what I'm leading up to here is the gra- the great injustice ignored by many. Mm. Um, that Max gets nothing out of this. Oh. It's oh, the, it, there's no hereditary titles. Turning into the real pod now. So unfair. The real part's quite good. Um, let's talk about the budget. It does feel like a long time ago. Did, and it went really, went, you know, that seemed to go pretty well for the governing National Party. Stephen Joyce it was, it was managed great. to avoid any banana skins. Um, and, I mean, people, I think, justifiably people say that you shouldn't kind of leap into discussing the politics of it before discussing the, the substance of it. Um and the substance of it was what, Ben? There were there weren't tax cuts. There were shifting of the brackets to adjust for the how inflation has crept. Right? That was there, uh, there was bracket. Yeah, there was uh, shifting of the brackets to address what they call bracket creep, where yeah. because you know wages increase by inflation, you know by inflation and pay rises. And that should just be that should just be embedded in the in the tax law, shouldn't it? I, th- so I think that's, than- that's act policy, as you'd, I think, that you regularly update it. There you go. And, Talking and, and I think basic common sense again. <laughs> Association of Consumers and Taxpayers. And um, so that, that happens periodically. What that means also is that everyone gets the same pay rise at a certain, you know, or the same, um, it's the same tax cut. I shouldn't say pay rise because this is one of my chief beefs with right. governments over the last sort of 10 years is that they characterise this as sort of giving families and, and workers something mm. rather than just not taking more than they need. Um, and, and I think it's it's caused this sort of weird um, kind of effect on the, the electorate whereby we look to the government to improve our standard of living and our take-home pay. Um, and they sort of, every few years, they'll give us $10 a week or $20 a week and smile satisfied like a good bloke boss who's just brought you 30 cans of double brown at the end of the week or something. 30? Well, you know, for the whole for the whole country. The whole, oh, I see. <laughs> it's, um, and but but this and and the other thing that happened was a lot more allowances and benefits um, to sort of equalise um, after tax pay. So big big rises in the accommodation supplement um, yeah. increases in a lot of working for families payments. Yeah. So it turns out the the the, the you know the the only problem with working for families and communism by stealth that John Key had was that it was too stealthy. Uh, well, I mean, um, uh, David Seymour said that it was a... What did he say? He said it was a... Was he said, did he say Cossack? Oh, no, he said, um, he said it was a... It was a well, wearing his hammer and sickle Hammer and sickle budget yeah. or whatever. But then he also said that it was the kind of... It was the kind of budget that Michael Cullen could have delivered, and that was probably... 
closer to the truth. Well, it was it was big increases in the sorts of benefits, you know, disguised as tax credits, right? You know, working for families, that sort of thing that um, that Labor used instead of tax cuts across the board. Um, it didn't it didn't change tax rates um, in terms of the percentages. So yeah, I, I think that's quite, and and there was a lot more social spending. I mean, what really happened is that. Joyce looked at all of the weaknesses that the government had and just sort of threw money at them. So housing was a weakness, so he decided to spend more money on the accommodation supplement so that people would feel that they had more money for rent. Now, ultimately, of course, that'll go straight into landlords' pockets. Um, yeah. but, but at the time, people feel like they're going to be getting a boost. You know, they, they get these stories. Well, it manages to keep landlords happy as well. That's, that was the, yeah, that's because right. Because the, 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 the current government have resisted increases to the accommodation supplement. There have been, mm, yeah. in, in part, it seemed because of I think MSD research that suggested that precisely it, it gets passed on. Yeah, and that I don't know, Annabelle. I don't know what you make of all that, but it does seem as though if that happens by itself, without some other changes to people, for people who rent, such as a warrant of fitness, such as other guarantees, it seems seems to sort of lack any meat. Really, what do you reckon? Yeah, well, in the absence of like a think big kind of housing scheme, just giving people a bit of extra money for their accommodation supplement seems to be a very um, a deficit approach to dealing with the problem of of housing. As someone who doesn't know their times tables, I don't really feel like I should comment too much about the budget. It's sort of like getting medical advice from the people who are promoting vaxxed. Right. But um but but certainly it it, it seems like a band-aid approach and, and you know arguably a tax bonus for landlords. It does though for those of us who aren't necessarily especially gifted in the mathematics department it does offer an opportunity to just do kind of endless to the point of tedium epithet type gags where you call you know the band-aid budget or the mm. Stockholm syndrome budget or whatever this one never then it's been a long time since one has actually stuck yeah no that's right i remember the colby budget that was pretty colby inspiring cheese. yeah that was that I was when the that. tax cuts were the same as two blocks of cheese okay. this was remember those the halcyon days you would have been in the uk eating all of our export quality cheese <laughs> and 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 the greatest the greatest problem facing new zealand was the increasing cost of dairy at supermarkets yeah, that was, no, it I seems a that. long time ago yeah. it did seem pretty I unfair stuff like right that in it the brain drain and you know <laughs> <laughs> those kind of problems mm. yeah so um, cool. but it did the politics of it it did kind of it did snooker the Labour and Green opposition. It, it just smothered them, and they um, just were scrambling to try and work it. They, I mean, they tried fair, the dollar bill they, budget, didn't they? That was their th- first. Didn't they only get like an hour beforehand to get prep a, before they go hours. into the house? Yeah. Not, yeah, it's pretty tough. It is tough, and so you've <laughs> got to obviously have. They've always sort of scripted half of the response already, and, and, and this became to make clear. It fit. You know, Andrew Little was scrolling past sort of whole sections right. on his iPad as right. he did his speech and reply, and couldn't make the full ten minutes or to a half an hour. Sorry, I think you twenty minutes. Yeah, um, and 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 part of that was because you know, you know, he obviously had prescripted lines on mental health funding, and then the government threw two hundred million dollars at mental health funding. Yeah, a bit. And it a looked bit. a bit sort of ad hoc. Yeah. Um, when you sort of looked at it, it was kind of for a hundred million dollars for innovative solutions mm. uh, for for, for um, mental health issues. And yet, um, Team New Zealand got more um, than what Youth Suicide did in the budget. Mm. Is that two million over two well, million for four years, money. or yeah. 
versus what New Zealand got for uh, Team New Zealand got to run their America's Cup campaign? Well, I think the government's <laughs> thrown a lot more into it this year, but there is, I mean, there is a question about how well it's going to be used. You know, it was, it was tagged for sort of innovative solutions, which I think is code for well-meaning hard-case mavericks to tour high school, giving inspirational Dawson's Creek-style speeches, um, and rather than the sort of <laughs> methods which are shown to work, which is what we're doing now, but more of it. I mean, there is, there is, mental health is a really interesting area because um, I think, I think, I mean, I mean, I think there is a genuine possibility it becomes an election issue. And obviously these things tend to have more traction when a kind of human story attaches itself to the broader mm. policy debate. But more and more with mental health, my perception is that it's something that people and families or wherever talk about. You know, it's no longer a kind of something that you you kind of don't really talk about down at the supermarket or the pub or the cafe or whatever. And so increasingly it's 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 visibility and its currency as a political issue is, is important and and clearly it's an incredible strain on the system, right? Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, you know, f- funding has increased um, under this government, but the demand I think has gone up by sixty percent in eight years. You know, um, look, I'm 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 centre right. I'm a big fan of late capitalism. But you can't really argue that there hasn't been this massive externality um, in terms of the kind of mental health strain on the pop- on a population basis. Um, you know, I when I was a kid, th- there was no there was no sort of hint of the same sort of levels of depression, anxiety in the community at large. And a lot of that's to do with the way we live now and, and the government has to step up because there isn't, you know, any way that people can solve that externality themselves. Um, I don't know, Annabelle, do we want to start talking about social investment and all that sort of stuff? And she doesn't look at your face is telling me <laughs> quite clearly no. Um, let's... Can can you guys just explain to me what's because I don't really have any grip on it. What's going on with Ngapuhi? Um, the is it is it is it ever going to be resolved? I mean, it's well, my understanding is that it was fairly close to being resolved until the the latest um, manoeuvring. So I, I was kind of surprised to see it. Um, to see it come back up again because my understanding is that um, both Tuhoro Nuku and Te Kotahitanga had been working away on Maranga Mai, Maranga Mai had been accepted and then um, there was a few ratifications that seemed to be ticking along and then this happened. I understand Finlayson is disappointed. Um, he's been working really hard on this for a long time. Um, there's been some sort of mischief making a, a, a around the way it's been reported is, you know, you can't deal with a hundred hapus and and um, you know, divvy out the um, divvy out a settlement to all these various hapus because you have to have a critical mass, so on and so forth. But that's not actually what this was about. This was about negotiating their terms for a settlement rather than receiving their settlement money separately. So. Yeah, it's kind of hard to understand and disappointing, but, you know, this is one of the most important iwi settlements of our time, the majority of Māori. Whakapapata Ngāpuhi, it has the potential to do incredible good in some of the most highly deprived communities in the country, and um, it's just a real shame to see it stumble again. 
So, yeah, Napui is the biggest iwi in the country, about 110,000 people, just about 100 hapu. It's a, it's, it's a massive, <laughs> historically not hugely cohesive. Would that be fair? Yeah, but, you know, if, if the government can negotiate multilateral, um, mm. you know, trade deals all across the planet, I don't see why you can't, you know, deal with these hapu yeah. and... So in the past, John Key said there's about probably around two hundred bucks uh, million dollars on the table for an Apui settlement, which would obviously be a huge kickstart for economic growth in the north. Um, it would mean jobs, it would mean development, it would mean cultural revival. Um, and and w- w- where there seems to be a sticking point is to Horonuku, which was a group set up to pro- to um, progress the treaty negotiations and led by a guy called Sonny Toe, who's a very pugnacious, driven guy who perhaps does not have the best relationships with uh, some of the other uh, groups in Napui. So he, he, he drove that process through to, to getting a mandate, to kind of, you know, convincing enough, enough Napui that there should be, you know, some kind of progress on settlements. There were these, uh, there was a group called Teko Tahitanga who didn't necessarily agree, and there's been a real sticking point, and, and right now um, it uh, seems to be There was also overall. a treaty claim in the middle of it all, an yeah, urgent yeah. treaty claim, which found that the mandate wasn't um, wasn't strong and that um, really they should go back to the drawing board and figure out a way for the two groups to come yeah, together. Yeah. And a lot of work had been done on that with, huge with, po- with positive results too, I understand. Yeah, and huge, huge numbers of people sort of flowing into... To try and to try and get the two groups working together, Jim, James Bolger, former Prime Minister, Tuku Morgan, current president of the Māori Party, mm. before he took that role, um, and and there has been this incremental progress, and I think everyone was feeling quite positive about it, and it seems to have founded, from everyone I've talked to, it seems to have founded on personalities, mm. and and it's a couple Finlayson, of individuals holding the iwi. F- Finlayson publicly, I think, said that it was Sunny Toe needed to get out of the way. Before this could progress any further, um, I my 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 grand and naive hope for the next parliamentary term is that the MP for Northland, the Right Honourable Winston Peters, um, can play a role in getting that sort of moving. Um, you know, he's 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 not Napui himself; he's Nati wide, but he is um, he's pretty keyed in to that kind of mm. area. Um, it's about time for him to leave a legacy that's something other than sort of calling Muslims vipers. Do you think? I imagine seriously... though that his that his opinion of this will be largely informed by Shane Jones, and Shane Jones is a um, appears to be a um, Tuhoronuku advocate. So I'm not sure if. Um, if we'll see peace break out across the north anytime soon. Well, that's all very helpful. Thank you very much. Um, we'll let you go, Ben. You've got to catch a flight to Wellington, don't you? You can see the excitement I'd hate to miss that. across your face. Um, thank you very much, Ben Thomas from Excelsior. Thank you very much, Annabelle Lee from the Hui. Thank you very much to Life Direct, our sponsors. You can click on their finger me doodle on the side of any politics direct. page and see uh, what the best life insurance deal you can get is. Uh, we're gonna. We'll be back hopefully re- sooner than the last one, right? We'll, we'll, should, we, should we try and do another one in a fortnight or something? There we go. Yeah. Did we say that last time? Did we say that last time? Should we, for the end of the podcast, just sort of get our diaries out, and knuckle out some times? Yeah. Would that be a good bit of content? Wednesday's always good for me. <laughs> Wednesdays are good for you. Mm-hmm. Okay. We, um, okay. We'll see you a bit there. Um, okay. Could you do another jingle, Annabelle? Jingle us out. 
Love songs till midnight. I'm 98FM with your host, Gail Ludlow. Kia ora e te iwi, Kia he Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.